need to convince this group in here that there's a heritage that we pass on that goes from generation to generation, right? I said, I don't need to teach you the importance of heritage. Our faith being passed down from generation to generation, do I? This is a little bit smarter group in here. I know you, you're that. But uh, you'd be surprised how many excuses I hear on Sunday mornings or maybe Sunday afternoons or maybe during the week when I run across people who did not attend church on Sunday morning. Um, from time to time, you see people, you know, in places around Wichita. And if they weren't in church on Sunday, what do they normally do? They duck and hide. Well, this is not a new problem today for us as a church. Did you know that? Uh, it's been a problem from the very foundation of the church. And one pastor got so discouraged and so distraught with his members not being regular attenders that he decided on one Sunday morning he would have a no-excuse Sunday. And in order for every excuse he had ever heard to be taken completely out of the equation, he declared a no-excuse Sunday, and this is what he declared to the church. In the following newsletter, to advertise it, this is the information that he wrote. Number one, there are eight things that he's going to provide. Beds will be placed in the fellowship hall for those who say, Sunday is my only day to rest. Eye drops will be available for those who, are who have tired eyes from watching television too late on Saturday night. Steel helmets will be provided for those who say, the roof will cave in if I ever went to church. Blankets, you might like this one in here, blankets will be furnished for those who think that the church is too cold, and air conditioning for those who say it's too hot. How do you make both those groups happy at the same time? I'm not quite sure. And number five, we will have a selection of trees and shrubs in the hallways and worship service for those who like to see God in nature and on the weekends. We've tried that, and we took those down. Number six, TV dinners will be available for those who can't go to church and cook the noon meal for the family at the same time. Scorecards, number seven, will be available for those who list the hypocrites present. And number eight, we'll reserve the front pew for those who like the pastor's sermons. That's why there's nobody up front. I, dare, I shouldn't have read that, but anyway... And reserve the back pews with earplugs for those who dislike the sermons. Have you, those in the back, got your earplugs yet? Have not. No excuse Sunday, no excuses. You'd be shocked and surprised at the many excuses that I always get for people and why they don't attend church on Sunday morning, why they're not there. Um, but there's a thing that I want us to talk about this morning that I think is very important for the family. We're on this series of the family, and and I know most of us in here have probably more than likely already raised our family and are, we're enjoying what we call the empty nest. Isn't it great? The empty nest. I said, isn't it great? The empty nest. It's wonderful. I can lay a $20 bill on the counter. It's there when I come back. <laughs> Unless Patty decides to get it. Um, you know, the only problem is I can't blame anyone for the stuff that's disappearing. You know what I'm saying? Or for the stuff that, that shouldn't be happening. And I, I always tell Patty that, that Aaron or Matthew must have come in with the key late at night and done something. And that's why it's the way that it is. Because living with me is very easy. Thank you for that vote of confidence. Um, 
But as we think about families and what's important for me as an individual Christ follower, what's important for me in my marriage, what's important for me and my family and even my extended family, it's a thing called rhythm. There's a spiritual rhythm that's vitally important to the family life of every family. And it's, it's this rhythm right here. I'm not a musician, so uh, just, just stay with me. There's a rhythm. The rhythm is Sunday morning I come and I worship with other believers of like faith. And after Sunday morning, I go out into the world and I seek to live out the gospel of Christ in a transformational way. That doesn't always go the way I would like it to go. And so as a result of that, I come back again on Sunday morning and I gain the strength and support and the encouragement and even the conviction so that I can cleanse my life of things that, that went wrong during the week. And then after I do that, I go back out again. And Monday through Saturday, things go as they go and I come back to church and I, I gain strength and support and encouragement again. And then I go out. And you see how it happens? It's the rhythm a spiritual rhythm that strengthens not only me as an individual, not only does it strengthen my marriage, but it strengthens my family unit. It helps my children. And whenever I find that in a, in a marriage or in a life or a family where there, there's a void of this rhythm in their life, it is indicative of the reality that they have grown spiritually estranged from God because the first thing that goes out the window and, and, and the discipline that stops when I'm growing distant in my relationship with God is my lack of attendance and participation in a church family. Happens every time. Because if I'm not walking close to the Lord Monday through Saturday, I'm certainly not going to want to come on Sunday morning with other believers in his presence as we sang about. Because I'm going to, I'm going to receive conviction and I'm going, to, I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to be asked, where have you been? I haven't seen you. Whatever. And these people are well-intended when they come up and put their arm around and say, have missed, being, missed seeing you there. And so because of that estrangement, one of the first disciplines that goes out the window is, is church participation. And, and eventually what happens is they, they might come back from time to time, but what, what eventually happens is what we call in the old-time religion church a backslider. Someone gets saved, they start out on the front pew. Brad's not left here because he's, never mind, I'm not going to go there. But he likes, he likes to be there, and I appreciate you guys being there. He and Cindy, but, but they start out here, and they go all the way back, and eventually they sit on the back pew, they backslide. And before you know it, they're not attending anymore. They're not participating anymore. They're not gaining anything. They're not contributing anything, and they fall by the wayside. We have literally thousands of members, thousands of members on the books in the membership of our church who have done exactly that. I'm not talking dozens, hundreds, I'm talking thousands of people who at one time in one place in their life trusted Jesus as their Savior, made a public declaration of their faith, followed through in obedience, and were baptized in a baptistry, much like this one, and then started off somewhere opening the Bible, couldn't get enough, couldn't pray enough, couldn't attend enough, couldn't do enough, couldn't serve enough, and they eventually just slowly backslide to the point where they become so spiritually estranged that they no longer participate because they no longer see the value of participating in a church family, in a spiritual family. 
And as a result of that, I think what we have here is we have dysfunctional lives who are being lived out for the Lord in a very dysfunctional way because you can't be functional, you can't be right and be disassociated or estranged with the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. It is his bride. And we, when, we, when, we, when we hurt his bride, we hurt the Lord. You can say anything you want to about me, but you talk about my bride, my wife, we're going to have words. And that is very true with the Father and the Son because we as the church were instituted by Jesus and it was never his vision for the church not to congregate, not to come together on a weekly basis. Some churches in the New Testament came together seven days a week. And some of us think it's hard to get up and get ready on Sunday morning. Think about seven days a week. And so here we have in this passage, I think, one of the most instrumental aspects about the family unit and the importance of being spiritually connected and participating with other believers once a week, how invaluable that is. And that value is passed down from generation to generation. I can remember as a child that it was not an option. It was never a consideration what we were going to do on Sunday morning. And if we didn't go to church on Sunday morning because we were too sick, we didn't do anything on Sunday afternoon. We didn't do anything Sunday night unless go to church. I can remember that Wednesday night was not an option as a kid. We got up and went. And I'm going to tell you that my children now are passing that along into their children. It's not a discussion where we're going on Sunday. And my grandchildren are looking forward now to going to church. And that old adage that, that I mentioned last week where I grew up, where my parents said, and that generation said, do as I say, not do as I do. Some of us, though, grew up in, in families where that was not a priority. It was not a value. And so we didn't attend church, and our children now don't attend church. And as a result of that, when you ask someone where they attend and how faithful they are, you know what, what people consider to be faithful attendance and participation in the church? It was four Sundays out of the month. Now it's two Sundays out of the month. In the 930 service over there, we have two congregations if they're coming twice a month. Think about it. And so we, we, we have renegotiated and renavigated this whole value system called Dare I say churchmanship, connection to a spiritual body, and faithful participation on a weekly basis, and that rhythm that we need. And as a parent, as a grandparent, I think every time we say it's not important to be on church on Sunday morning, and we go to a ballpark, or we go to a lake, or we go somewhere else, we're telling them what our value system is. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there are vacations, and I think there are reasons for that. But I, I think that I can remember times when my, my children and I had discussions about what they were going to do on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings. Because it was back when my kids were growing up that they began to do Sunday, uh, Sunday ball games and Wednesday night practices. Some of you remember that. Uh, the generation over there at the 930 service, they don't remember that. My children, you know, in their age, I remember you would never, as a coach, schedule a practice on Wednesday night. And you would never have a tournament on Sunday. 
But that's no longer the value system in America. Why? Because the church today has ceased the importance of being and participating every week on a weekly basis in regular attendance on Sunday morning. And we have lost the value of that significance. And it's no wonder that, that our personal lives and our marriages and our families and our nation is crumbling. And, and God had something to say to a church in, 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 in the New Testament, a church of a bunch of Hebrews who were Jewish believers, who were already early on in the church making the decision not to go. So this is not a modern-day problem, really. It's a problem that existed back in the New Testament, and that's why God addresses through the Apostle Paul and shares through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, why it's important to be a part and to be connected and to participate on a weekly basis in a church community, in a fellowship, as a member of the body of Christ. Take a look at the text in Hebrews chapter 10. Stand with me in verse 19. It's a long introduction, wasn't it? Chapter 10, Hebrews, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Thank you, Brother Andy, for singing that song. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit works. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we can stir up one another to love and good works. There's a good stirring, isn't it? Not to stir up in a bad way, but a good way. Not neglecting, he says, the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And everybody said, thank you, please be seated. I want you to take a look at that text there as we take a look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Not neglecting. Not forsaking, your translation may say. The word neglect or forsake simply means to leave in straits. It means to leave in a state of helplessness. It means to, to abandon the very bride, the very body of Jesus Christ. There were some who had already, early on, in the early stages of the church, had decided it's not really that important that I show up. And they already had developed the habit of not attending the local fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ and gathered together for worship. And they were forsaking the fellowship. Did you know that the same word that is used here by the Apostle Paul in writing this text under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the same word that Jesus used when he was hanging on a cross, when he was dying for our sins, and he yelled out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? When he was taking upon himself our sin against God, and God turned his back. He said, you've forsaken me, and when we forsake the church, we turn our back on the church, and we render it helpless. And the reason we do is because we are the body of Christ, and every part of the body is significant. It's important. Let's say this morning when you try to get up out of bed, your leg, your right leg would not cooperate and decided to remain asleep. How well would you walk? Or your eyes decided not to function? And most of us can be here without our brains functioning. 
But, but every aspect of the body is significant and it was placed strategically by the father almost with the precision of, of, a, of a surgeon where he grafted that part of the body. He grafted you, he placed you in the body for a significant purpose and when you are not present, you are missed. Brother Stan said, he sent me a text this morning. He was not going to be able to be here because he was sick. And I, I sent a text back. I said, uh, sorry you're sick, hope you feel better. We will miss you. We will miss you. Because when you and I and others are not present, they are missed. Because you're a necessary component, a necessary part of the body. Whether you like it or not. He called you. He saved you. He placed you for a purpose. And we are better together and we need each other in order to accomplish and fulfill individually, in my family, and corporately what God has called us to accomplish. So let's take a look at the text, at this rhythm. I want us to, to sort of take a look, as we take a look at this rhythm, I want us to see the overflow that, that, that spills over into our lives when this rhythm is there. When you're, when you're exercising this rhythm, and you're personally here, and you're here with your spouse, and you bring your children, and you have that rhythm, there is a natural overflow, a natural pouring out, a natural benefit, a blessing, if you please, as to what's going to happen in your life as you seek to become the individual and have the marriage and raise the children, have the family and the church, the body of Christ, that is necessary for us to fulfill our mission. Take a look at number one in verse 19. The natural overflow, first of all, helps my family confidently access God's presence. It helps me confidently access God's presence. There's a confidence here that is described that helps me approach the very throne of God, not with shyness or, or not with a sense of, of worry or preoccupation, but with incredible confidence. He says, Therefore, that's a huge word in this whole narrative here. He's taken nine chapters to introduce what he's about to say. Long introduction. He set up a whole theological argument that, that, that is critical in the lives of these Jewish believers who are being pressed down from every angle of society and, and, and even the Jewish church in incredible hardship and suffering and persecution. And he's saying to them, Jesus Christ is sufficient. Not only is he sufficient, but he is supreme. He is the new way and the only way. He goes to extreme measures to talk about the sufficiency of Jesus and uh, then he says, therefore, having said all that, he calls them brothers. We're connected. We have the same father. We have the same father. I, Paul, am your brother, and you are my brother. Those of us in here are brothers and sisters. Why? Because we have one father, one God. Wasn't that unique to Israel? They didn't have multiple gods. God was not the greatest above all gods. He was the only true and living God. And when we come to faith in Christ, we enter into that relationship. We are grafted into that relationship where we now become brothers and sisters. Why? Because he's our Abba. He is our Father. So we're family. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're family. Are we family? Yeah. We have one Father. So notice this is therefore, brothers, since we as a family unit with one father, 
We now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, now, it says here that we as believers have an incredible privilege. What is the privilege that we have? We have an incredible privilege to enter into the very presence of God. Now, for us today, that doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? But the reality is it is a big deal. It was a big deal for those who he's writing to because, you see, by tradition, they were of the Old Testament covenant. They were practicing Jews, and they got saved. And for a, a, an Old Testament, practicing Old Testament Jewish follower of Jehovah God. There was only one place they believed the presence of God existed. Where is that place? In the temple. Where the, 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 the Shekinah glory of the Lord promised to Moses that he would dwell. He wanted, he promised Moses that he would be among his people. And he was among his people through the Shekinah glory of the Lord where the Ark of the Covenant was preserved. And that, they believed, was where the presence of God was located. Now, we know in here that that didn't contain all of God because that little room is not big enough to contain all of God. But it was a manifestation of the presence of God. And if we were practicing Old Testament Jews, in order for us to be in the presence of God, the only one who was allowed in and who accessed that presence was the priest once a year. That was it. We did not know, nor could we enjoy what we do today, the presence of God. So when we read this, you know, what's the big deal? That was a big deal to these people. They were being saved out of Judaism, and they believed that the presence, the Shekinah glory of God only existed in the temple. And when Christ died, as we sang about, the curtain was rent in two, and the presence of God now was exposed so that now we have an advocate, and his name is Jesus. And through faith in him, we have access to the very presence of God. So that's amazing. And we take that for granted, and often we, we, we just we minimize that. And they understood the value of it. There was a way, and the way was made possible through Jesus. And Jesus now becomes their high priest, not just once a year, but any time, any moment. We were to walk up to the temple, and Jesus say, hey, I'm your high priest, come on. I'm going to lead the way. And we follow him right into the Shekinah glory, right into the Holy of Holies, right into the very presence of God. Not one God among many, not the supreme God above all others, but the only true and living God. That was what was unique about Israel, but also the presence, the Shekinah glory of God was also unique to them. And God promised that he would always dwell among his people. And that was the promise through Christ that we now have complete and total access at any time. And while it is true that individually you and I can enter into the very throne room of God at any time, and while it is true that my family, while we're sitting down for devotions, enter into the very presence of God because he said where two or three are gathered together, he's there. So if you're having family devotions, he's there. But also on Sunday morning when we come together and we gather in this place to worship, every time we worship, God is present. We are standing on holy ground. This is an assembly that gathers together in the very presence of God. And only those of us who have experienced the regenerational work of the Holy Spirit of God and we've been justified by our sins and who are now being transformed in the likeness of Christ have access now to the Father. For John 14, 6, Jesus said what? 
I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except, except, are you in him? You have access to him. And when we come into this place, we don't just come here out of habit. While it's a good habit to have, we don't just come in here out of tradition. We just don't come in here to get. We come in here to magnify and glorify God. And every song that we sing, every thought that we think, everything that we hear, everything that we see should magnify and glorify God. And we must enter into this holy place as a sacred place because we are in the very presence of the living God. That's why it's important for me individually and me as a family to come and to be together with other believers of like faith who place their faith in Jesus to come together and to join with others in the presence of God. It's strengthens me, it encourages me, it invigorates my faith, and it helps me come together so that when I go out in this world that opposes and that's hostile and has, that persecutes and has other value systems, and I get dirty and dusty and, and all that, I need to come together in the very presence of God with other believers because that helps me. It encourages me. It gives me access corporately in the very presence of God. Secondly, it is a, a, an access, it is an overflow that helps my family continually enjoy God's grace. To continually enjoy God's grace. Here's the stretch. The stretch is this. How were we saved? We were saved by grace through faith. In that it is not of yourselves, but it is what? The gift of God. So that no one could boast. We were saved by grace through faith. We put our faith and trust in this redeeming, atoning, sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. And he took upon himself our sin. And I saw him as the only solution to my sin. And I prayed and I asked him to forgive me my sin. And he forgave me. And I committed to, to him being the Lord of my life. And now my relationship with God, I have been justified. I have been redeemed. And now he is my father and I am his child. And now through this incredible grace, I have access to him. Jesus is my bridge that gives me access to him. You follow me? And, and, and it's that very grace that allows me it allows me to come into the very presence of God. Without grace, we couldn't come into his presence. Because it says here, let us, let us together, let us together draw near, how? With a true heart. The word true heart means a sincerity at heart. It means without hypocrisy. When we gather together in here, we're to do so without hypocrisy. Is that possible? Answer is no. Everyone in here is a hypocrite. Preacher called me a hypocrite in church today. Turn to your neighbor and say, well, you look like a hypocrite to me. Come on, go ahead and say it. Now, guys, if your wife is supposed to cook you lunch today, you're probably in trouble. There's several places on the way home you're gonna, you, can find that can, you can find some place to eat. But, and the reason why we're hypocrites is because none of us in here actually have lived perfect lives Monday through Saturday. And more than likely, there's a, a thing or two or four or five or ten in your life that you know right now that, that, that you need to deal with. And were it not for the very grace of God that continues to cover even the multitude of our sin, we not, would not have access to God. God doesn't say, hey, because you are not sincere in your heart, then you can't come. 
See, what happens, I think, sometimes when we know and we're convicted of sin, and I've said this many times before, but repetition is always good. When we, when we know that our lives are filled with hypocrisy, we usually turn from God, not to God. Right? But we need to go against that. We need to turn to God. What would cause us to turn to God? Because we know with confidence that when we do, his grace is more than sufficient. Notice what it says in the text. To draw near with a true heart. Jesus many times talked to, talked to the religious elite who were saying, hey, your lips talk about me, but your heart is far from me. We know that when we come in here, we've been out there in the world and our hearts are far from him. But when we come together, we come in a full assurance of faith. Fully persuaded that God will not only receive us, but he will accept us. Because the same grace that saved us is the same grace that receives us. Because notice it says... With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's talking about ceremonial cleansing. That it's by faith that all I have to do is to confess my sin. And if I confess my sin, I know that he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me. To cleanse my conscience and to cleanse my soul. To wash me well, the power of the Holy Spirit to cleanse me and to make me clean and holy because he is holy. He wants his worshipers to worship him holy. It's phenomenal. Where else can I go and get that? I can't do it in my closet, in my private time. I can do it even in a family worship. But there's nothing like coming together with other hypocrites on Sunday. I said there's nothing like gathering together with other hypocrites on Sunday. If you're out there asking people to join you for church, I don't want to go to that church. A bunch of hypocrites down there. Well, come join us. We'll just all be hypocrites together. Because that's the greatest accusation against the church, isn't it? And in part, they're true. Because none of us can live perfect life. But it's great to know that the same grace that saved me now moves me and compels me to come toward Christ and as I come to him and confess I can be cleansed and washed and that's the beauty about a corporate setting like that because it is our conscience that condemns us it's that little Jiminy Cricket follow me Pinocchio that keeps pulling us toward God, but we have a carnal nature that pulls us toward sin and the flesh and the world. And, and, and there's a struggle. And, 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 and while we, we know, we, we sometimes yield to the flesh. But, but then the conscience says, hey, remember what you said last week? Remember what you did last week? Remember what you didn't do last week? Remember what you... And, and yeah, so we come in here. And some of you say, yeah, you really stepped on my toes today. I didn't step on anybody's toes. If I did... Uh, you're not listening well. Hopefully, your conscience led by the Spirit. And this is a wonderful time of reconciliation and making restitution and getting right together as a family before God. Number three, uh, the, final, uh, the natural overflow not only helps me confidently assess God's presence, continually enjoy God's grace, but courageously communicate our faith. Notice he says in verse 23, let us hold fast. Let us together assemble in God's presence. And as we do, as we gather, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This word hold fast is in the present tense. 
It means that once we have gotten a hold of it, we are not to let it go. And the imagery here, one commentator said, it's a beautiful imagery. It is the imagery of someone who has the, the flag, okay, the national flag, and, and there's a war going on. And the person is gripping on as tight as they can in the midst of war with that flag. And, and the enemy is coming, and instead of running away, he runs to the enemy. And that flag motivates and encourages everyone else to charge. And um, um, Mel Gibson was in a movie, uh, um, Patriot. I saw the cleaned up version on, 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 on television, you know as cleaned up as it can be. But there was a time in battle when the flag was about to fall and he grabs the flag and he charges the enemy and he motivates everyone else to move forward and a great victory is won. That's what happens when we get together because some of us in our weakness are letting go. But when we gather together with other people that are holding on strong and they're charging, guess what? We grip ours and we charge. And we charge. That's why it's important to be here because I don't care how you're out here. If you don't come here and get encouragement and strength and support, you, your grip's going to eventually wear down and you're going to let the flag fall. And he says, this is the whole culmination of, of Hebrews 1 through chapter 9. This is what he's writing about. He's saying, hold fast. He says to these believers, he knows that they're being pressed in from every side and they're discouraged and they're distraught and they're wavering and, and their grip is not as strong as it originally was. But he says, hold fast the confession of our hope. It is our hope, his and theirs and ours, hope. Some of your translations say faith. I think the better translation here is hope because without hope, what happens? There's nothing worse than a hopeless believer who's lost hope. And when hopelessness begins to, to take its toll, the grip begins to become loose. But he says, grip without wavering. Stay firm. Stay fixed. Be unyielding. Be relentless. Don't let the, the, the world, don't let the battle, don't let the pressures shaken your faith. Don't backslide. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. That's why we gather together, because on our own out there, you know, as an island, separated, segregated from the community, we're an easier target. But, but, but remember, he says, there's some incredible things here. There's a thing called the promises of God, because God is faithful, and he's faithful to his promises. There's two aspects and two, uh, I think, things and aspects that help us understand this. Number one, God is faithful and is futuristic, so is hope that, that, that there's a reward in the end. There's a reward and there's a promise of a better tomorrow. So regardless of the cost of the sacrifice, there's a reward. But I think he's also saying in your weakness, in your weakness, there's a grace that transcends your weakness. Remember the apostle Paul when he prayed three times for the Lord to remove his thorn? When God didn't remove the thorn, what did he do? Instead of removing the thorn, he said, my grace is sufficient. I think he's saying, hey, you have the promise of my spirit, and where my spirit is, there is the grace that is more than sufficient in your weakness. When you feel like letting go, all you have to do is turn to me, depend on me, look to me, and, and lean on me, and my grace will help you endure. And so it 
helps us overflow in these three areas. Consistently accessing God's presence. Number two, continually enjoying God's grace. Number three, courageously communicating our faith. Our faith. There is a communication here. How do we communicate our faith? How do we hold fast to the confession of our faith unless we come together? Because I I don't know about you, but my voice is is a very small voice when I'm in the world by myself. But when I come together and I sing praises with other people, and when I read scripture like we read this morning with other people, and, and we go out as one voice, what does that do for my faith and your faith and our faith? We have a greater voice together than we do individually separated and segregated from the church. And as we come together, we hold fast the confession of our faith and our voice is louder as we proclaim the gospel message and the good news of Jesus. Number four, it compassionately ministers to others. The overflow is a compassionate ministry to others. Notice what it says in the text, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and to good works. Let us, who belong to the family, Let us consider each other. The word consider is an interesting word. It means to take into consideration. It means to attentively pay attention to someone else to the degree in which you understand and you recognize the other's need. You consider them. We are here as a family coming together looking for consideration from others. And also to consider the needs of others around us because, as I said, we are not an island. We, have, we are not isolated. We have been grafted into the body of Christ for a specific purpose. You have talents and gifts and abilities that are necessary that I need to draw from. And I have ones that you need to draw from. And together, as we draw from these resources and consider one another, notice what happens. We stir up one another to love and to good works. Now, there's a stirring that's not good. When you do something to provoke someone and you get a bad reaction. But this is a stirring that has a positive effect in that it stirs. When I consider you, it stirs me. It, it, it persuades me. It moves me to love and good works. The word love here simply means being second, not first. There's a whole movement out there in a, a program called I'm Second. Andy and I were talking about this up here. I told you I was going to use an illustration. But uh, we got to talking about the order of service. I left mine in the office, and I didn't find one around. And so I said, so I, who's up next? Who's, who's up first? He looked at me and said, I'm up first this time. And uh, we got to kidding about that, uh, that he was up first. And I said, that's because you get to line out the order of service. You know, the I'm first thing. We all like to be first in line. We all like to be first across the traffic light. But when we come together as a family, we consider one another. We put them first. Their needs are first, not mine. Does that sound like Emmanuel Baptist Church? Where I'm putting the needs of others first? Or are we all wanting to be first? We want you to consider my needs. My needs. Mine. I'm first. No, according to Christ and according to this text, the family that we should belong to, the spiritual community that we should be grafted into is one in which we come and we die to our needs and we put others first. Well, I guarantee you, if, if we became a church where you weren't first and you were second, uh, there's a church down the street that'll make you first. And you'll be first for a while until someone else comes and says, make me first. And they'll, they'll bring them into their church and make them first. And then all of a sudden you'll find yourself in second place. Because it's hard to make everybody first in a family. It's impossible. 
Somebody has to take second chair and third chair and fourth chair. And, and if we were the kind of church in which we came together and we took each other into consideration, becoming this family, we would spur one another up to, to love and to good works. And the works that it's talking about here are good and they're necessary in order not only to minister to each other, but to fulfill the mission that God has given the church. And, and, and the church that we connect with should be a connection of, of, of consideration where we are passionately, passionately ministering to each other. And he, here's the rhythm. If I come to a church where I, I, I'm being considered by those around me, maybe in my life group or my, Gail's in here, Sunday school class, and, and I'm a part of a, a small group where I'm being considered and they're ministering to my needs, uh, wouldn't that be a great church to be a part of? And if you're not a part of a small group, you need to be a part of a small group because that's where ministry takes place for the large part in this church. And we need to be a church that, that gathers together. And, and when I come, people are attentively seeing my needs and they're ministering and meeting my needs and I'm attentively paying attention not to my needs but to someone else's needs and I'm meeting their needs and they are meeting someone else's needs and they are considering my needs and so all the needs get met not because I demand them or because I put myself first but because there are people here who are considering considering my needs now keep in mind they have to be needs and not wants or likes the genuine needs and then lastly, the overflow is a consistency in living for eternity. We'll close here. A consistently, consistency in living for eternity. Notice what it says in the last verse, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Interesting here, there's a charge that he gives to the church. A charge to participate. To be consistently moving toward eternity. And if we are to be individuals, if we are to be families, if we are to be a church, we must come together because as we come together, charging each other. Notice in the original language, this is plural here. It means that I have a charge to look after you and you have a charge to look after me. We're accountable and responsible for looking after each other. That's the context here. And so I have a responsibility now to make sure that we not neglect meeting together. In other words, I faithfully participate. I come. And I charge you to come. And we come together because we've been given a mandate by the Father. Somebody said, well, where is it in the Bible where it says I need to come together on Sunday morning? Right here. Do not neglect meeting together as was the habit of some. Some were already in the habit of not coming together. And God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells Paul to tell this church, stop doing that. You should responsibly, faithfully participate individually to the body of Christ. Not only that, but we have a charge to encourage one another to do so. We have a responsibility to charge each other to do so. He says, encourage one another not to neglect the assembling of yourselves together is a habit of some. There's some in your body, he's saying to the church, that you need to go to and say, hey, you need to stop not coming. You need to come. Did you know that Emmanuel Baptist Church doesn't have dozens, it doesn't have hundreds, it has thousands of people who are members of this church who don't attend. Thousands on our roll who have neglected to the habit of coming together on a regular basis. 
they, they are defying Scripture by not belonging and not attending and not participating in the church that God has grafted you into. Whether you like everything or not or, or agree with everything or not, that's inconsequential. It doesn't say that anywhere. We all have a place and we all have a responsibility to be grafted and to be used by the Father. And we must encourage one. I wonder today how many people that you know of right now who have stopped attending and could use a word of encouragement. Well, that's the preacher's job. Well, Gail has a, a job description at the bottom of that. It says, and anything else described by the pastor. Well, then I, I'm going to hand it over to him. So it's Gail's job. How about that, Gail? Yeah. He can't contact thousands of people. And maybe there's somebody just waiting for a word of encouragement. Now, I know there's some who have left us over the years and have gone to other churches. That's fine. We need to take them off the roll. But there are, there are people around you right now who belong to other churches who are not attending. Now, I'm not after already attendees in other churches. That's not, that's not what we're after. That, those people are not our target. So if you know somebody that's faithfully attending on a regular basis in another church, do not invite them to this church. I know of a pastor who came to a new town, and he was a new pastor in town, and he told all the other pastors in a meeting that he attended, he said, I'm here to bring you notice that I'm after every one of your members. I'm going to do everything I can to steal your members. Yeah, the church is like that. Other members that are faithfully attending are not our target. But right now, you know people right now that, that are one of the thousands of our members or maybe a thousand so members in another church. They're not regularly attending, faithfully attending. They're not participating. They're not connected. You need to encourage them to connect to their church. And for whatever reason, they don't connect to their church, invite them to our church. Because I'm glad to be here, and we're a great church. Most of us are great people. Most of us. No, just kidding. All of us. And he says, why should we do that? Because one of these days, Jesus is going to return. One of these days, Jesus is going to return. And we're going to stand accountable for the responsibilities that are given to us. And as individual members of this body, we are told to come together. And, and I would hate to stand before Jesus and said, why did you... Why did you forsake my bride? Why did you turn your back on the church that I died for? You can say a lot of things about me, and many of them that you may say have already been said, trust me. But you say something about my wife, and we're going to have words. Because she's my bride, she's my wife. And I'm going to defend my wife. And Christ will defend his church. And we are the bride, the body of Christ. And he loves this church. He died for this church. And there's a reason why we're here. And, and, and we need to be really careful how we treat his bride. Because one day we'll be accountable to him. And if I'm connected to the Emmanuel Baptist Church, and I'm membership is here, and God placed me here, and he grafted me here, and I'm here. I'm going to participate. I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to be a good steward because one day I know I'm going to stand before Christ. He's going to return. For the dead in Christ shall rise, and we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds, and we will forever be with the Lord. And there will come a day 
where we as believers will stand before him and said, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? What kind of steward were you? Did you neglect my bride? So what would God have us do? What we'd have us first decide and then do from this day forward that would forever alter the rhythm of our family life. Our individual family life and our corporate family life. The rhythm. Don't neglect it. Don't forsake it because it will make a difference in your life, in your marriage, and in your family. I guarantee it. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.